You are listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 22nd of January 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View, coming up today. I think, you know, a lot of this is PR. A lot of this is wanting to be seen to do things rather than, you know, I'm sure there are as many elephants in these rooms as there are billionaires. My guests Peter Goodman and Terry Stiasny weigh in on what really gets done in Davos and what it's like to report on the World Economic Forum. Plus, we look at how the UK is doing in working out future trade deals with the US and the European Union, something it says it can do simultaneously, although our panellists remain sceptical. It's almost impossible to imagine a scenario where Boris Johnson can wrap up a deal on trade with Donald Trump without giving up significant concessions. And as a deadly virus spreads beyond China, we ask how much we can trust secretive regimes in tackling health crisis. I am Markus Hippi. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the programme. I'm joined by Terry Stiasny, political journalist and author, and Peter Goodman, global economics correspondent for the New York Times. We'll begin by turning our attention to the World Economic Forum in Davos, where there is always the strange juxtaposition of the global elite gathering in the Swiss mountains to discuss issues like inequality and climate change, things that have a greater impact on the world's poor. And it's something highlighted in the very title this year where workers of the world are referred to as stakeholders. Peter, if I may start with you, stakeholders, what does that term sound like to you? Uh, That's a fancy way of saying we care about people who depend on paychecks uh, to pay the bills and that uh, multinational corporations and and the global elite, the hedge funders, the investment bankers who dominate, uh, if not the ranks of Davos, uh, the people who are actually paying for Davos, that they supposedly care about issues beyond the bottom line for their own interests and the interests of, of their businesses. Terry, are you any more optimistic about what this could mean? I think uh, people who go to Davos always try to say that they are dealing with the big issues facing the world. And there is a certain benefit to having lots of these people uh, in the same room talking about it. But uh, they are always going to be um, at at one remove from it. They are, there are always ways where they try to highlight, you know, the big issues of the world. But they are talking largely, obviously, on behalf of people who aren't there. And I would question how much uh, those meetings, many of which would happen anyway in, in other cities and in other rooms, are actually going to change anybody's mind and actually make a concrete difference in policy. Peter, as, as Terry mentions over there, there may be discussions over there to be held on important issues. But do you think a gathering like Davos can make a difference? Look, Davos is an elaborate prop uh, for a business run by the World Economic Forum that's uh, really about gathering together wealthy people to do the things that wealthy people like to do. That's to make business deals behind the scenes. I mean, I mean, most of the real Davos that matters has nothing to do with the official agenda. It doesn't even take place inside the Congress Center, which is the place where all the official meetings take place. Take place in in suites uh, rented out by large corporations, the Belvedere Hotel across the street and other ho- hotels uh, in the area. 
Uh, that's that's where the real action is. In terms of the official program, the official program is always filled with high-minded talk about how to resolve economic inequality, how to deal with climate change, the Syrian refugee crisis. And, you know, the truth of the matter is that the people who are gathered in Davos do have the power to uh, change life uh, in, in all sorts of important ways, but they're mostly interested in maintaining their own wealth. So, I mean, take economic inequality. It's not really that complicated to address economic inequality. You have to find a way to distribute some of the wealth from the people who have it, uh, and that's the people in Davos, to some of the people who don't have so much of it. That involves progressive taxation. It involves strengthening unions and making it easier for workers to negotiate for their own interests. That's never on the agenda. There's always talk about, you know, this year it's empowering stakeholders. A couple of years ago, there was a lot of talk about mindfulness and meditation as a way to help ordinary people. Uh, we need to reskill workers. That's something you hear a lot of from corporate CEOs. It's just anathema to suggest progressive taxation. That's never on the menu. Terry, obviously you have been following what's happening in Davos for four years as well. Can you give us any encouraging examples when Davos would have actually benefited people who are not gathering there? Um, I do know that there are a lot of people who do go there with good intentions. I mean, I certainly know of people who are going there to try and push uh, global development goals, for instance, and to try to get commitments from governments to uh, pursue those goals like uh, education, for example. And But I think Davos is just one of the places where that happens. I mean, there are plenty of other forums in the world. And I suppose the difference with Davos is that you have uh, the heads of big corporations. You know, you have, you know, 119 billionaires, I think it is there, who obviously between them have the resources to try to do something about that. But I think, you know, a lot of this is PR, exactly, as you're saying. A lot of this is wanting to be seen to do things rather than, you know, I'm sure there are as many elephants in these rooms as there are billionaires. You know, let's not talk about increasing taxation. Let's not talk about uh, you know, privacy. Let's not talk about certain things that I think you when know, people who do go there and tell people uncomfortable truths, uh, you know, are, are surprised by the sort of the outrage <laughs> that results. Well, if you could pitch or suggest something to the global elite currently gathering in Davos, what would you want to say? Huh. Um... I mean, that's not really my role as a journalist, but I mean, if you're serious about addressing economic inequality and climate change, we don't lack for ways to do that. What we lack is political will to do that, uh, which requires uh, the people who are benefiting from the current system to sacrifice. And so I guess I guess I'd ask a question. I mean, what are you actually prepared to give up, Davos man and Davos women, uh, in order to realize some of these goals that you uh, keep enunciating year after year? Is there something you would like to say to those Davos men and women? Yes, I suppose there are two things, really. One is genuinely really try to think yourselves into the shoes of the people who aren't there. Think yourselves into the shoes of, I don't know, an Australian firefighter or somebody who has got a totally different experience of life for you, which is a hard thing to do. And the other thing I think I would say is take some time off. Just, you know, all of these people are there because they're huge overachievers, because they've worked incredibly hard, they've got a lot of money. And actually, sometimes maybe just 
take a step back. You know, go go skiing. Just take the afternoon off. A lot don't, of them don't, certainly don't go skiing. Yeah. And they go to parties and they eat white truffles paid for by global <laughs> banks. Uh, Reuters throws a giant ski party. The, 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 these people are not lacking for fun. <laughs> well, Peter, I know you've been in Davos. You've been reporting from Davos. Was it eight times? Have you had any yeah. time to ski, for example? What kind of an experience has I it will been for you to that be I have there? skied in Davos. It's a wonderful thing to do. Um, you know, look, if you wanted to simulate the Davos experience from a journalist standpoint, go put on a really uncomfortable pair of snow boots and then go check into the same flight about a dozen times uh, out at Heathrow or, or, or London City or, or, or Gatwick. I mean, the security dominates the proceeding. You're constantly kind of grabbing your stuff and walking to some distant point and going through tremendous security uh, while you go try to get a seat at some uh, oversubscribed event. It's a difficult thing to cover. And Terry, you have a very interesting Davos connection too. You haven't been there, but you write fiction. And I know that you based a chapter on one of your books on Davos. What's the story? What happens there? <laughs> I did, yeah, I did research. I was there, having not been there, I did speak to people who had. Uh, It was it was I suppose to illustrate precisely this point. So it was a good way to get a lot of characters. So say a French government minister who was implicated in a corruption scandal, and an African leader who was implicated in that scandal, and a PR man whose sort of life is about to fall apart because of it. To get those people in one room, and then also to contrast that with people working for uh, an aid agency on the ground uh, in Africa and whose lives were being put in danger by this very scandal that everybody else was trying to avoid talking about. So. <laughs> Sounds a bit heavy-handed put like that, but I hope it worked a bit better. Peter Goodman and Terry Stiosny there. We'll be back in just a moment. But first, here is Monocle's Daniel Bates with some of the other stories we have been following today. Thank you, Marcus. The U.S. Senate has adopted rules for President Donald Trump's impeachment trial and will now formally move into the oral arguments phase. This follows a lengthy debate about what would constitute a fair trial. President Trump is charged with abuse of power and obstructing Congress, and is just the third U.S. president to undergo an impeachment trial. Chinese authorities have advised people to stop traveling in and out of the city at the center of a new virus. The inhabitants of Wuhan have also been told to avoid crowds and large public gatherings. Nine people are known to have died from the virus, which has now spread beyond China's borders. And the former Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has accused the country's current leader, Scott Morrison, of lacking leadership during the current bushfire crisis. Turnbull claims that Morrison had misled Australia in, quote, downplaying the threat of global warming. Those are some of the headlines we're following. Now back to you, Marcus. Thanks, Danielle. This is Monocle's Houseview. I am Marcus Hippi, here with Terry Stiasny and Peter Goodman. We return now to our conversation on Davos, one of the interesting storylines playing out today at the World Economic Forum is a very public debate over a future of the US-UK trade deal. US Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin has told UK Chancellor Sajid Javid that the Trump administration is disappointed not to be first in line for a trade deal. Both men appeared on the same panel appearing to negotiate in public at a time when the Prime Minister Boris Johnson takes aim at trade deals with the EU and the US simultaneously. Javid has already met with EU leaders at Davos, expressing his interest in getting a deal done soon. Peter, how is Britain doing in negotiating two deals at once? Can Boris Johnson simultaneously pursue trade deals both with the EU and the US? 
Well, he can uh, make it look like he's doing that uh, as a way to try to boost his leverage uh, with the Europeans. But, I mean, make no mistake. I mean, the European Union buys almost half of Britain's exports. So that's where the action is. The The European single marketplace, which Britain is leaving uh, as a result of Brexit, which is officially going to transpire uh, on January 31st, uh, means that for the rest of the year, Uh, And this is during this transition period that runs through the end of the year. Britain has to negotiate some kind of trade deal with the European Union governing future dealings, or we're back to worrying about uh, a so-called no-deal Brexit, where uh, Britain crashes out without a deal, and we're back to worrying about chaos at the ports and potential shortages of things like medicines and uh, all sorts of British companies that depend upon Europe not only to buy exports, but also to send imports uh, that uh, people enjoy. I mean, things like uh, vegetables and wine that are on the shelves that come from Europe, but also companies that import components they use in their own products in Britain in the global supply chain. All of this stuff gets very uncomfortable the further into the year we get if there's no deal. Now, trade deals tend to take a long time. I mean, Europe spent seven years negotiating trade deals with Canada, with Japan, and the idea that they're going to pull off a a trade deal of consequence with Britain in something like eight to 11 months, uh, there's a lot of doubt about the ability to do that. Terry, do you trust in the British government's expertise when it comes to negotiating trade deals over here? It sounds like the expectations are close to unrealistic, all that talk about having a trade deal with the European Union by the end of the year, for example. Well, I think one of the interesting things is that certainly, you know, within the civil service, precisely because we have been in the EU for so long and those trade deals were negotiated uh, through the EU, we haven't got that expertise of people. Interestingly enough, the the expertise of some of the people that we had were the people like, say, Nick Clegg and Peter Mandelson and so forth, and no longer in government, who had actually worked within the EU trying to do those kinds of negotiations. So, you know, the capacity, and I think they're going to have to learn a lot uh, how to do it. It was interesting, I mean, talking about did Dav- does Davos change anything? We've seen, you know, the Sajid Javid, the Chancellor, and Stephen Mnuchin, the you know, US Treasury Secretary, having a bit of the public debate, you know, which will be just the tip of the iceberg of what's going on behind the scenes today. So the US saying, well, we want to talk about our trade deal first, raising these issues like threatening taxes on UK car companies if uh, Britain starts to bring in what they call you know, an arbitrary digital tax and saying, well, we can have you know arbitrary uh, taxes on, on car companies. So those kind of issues are, are going to be absolutely massive. And you know, yes, all of these issues like food, cars, aerospace, chemicals, all of these is- industries that are, are very big and complex uh, for the UK, and we are going to have to decide at some point what is our priority? Is it the the people closer by, or are we, as Sajid Javid was suggesting at the end of last week, going to allow Britain on the what to diverge from EU rules? But then that risks, you know, tariffs with the EU. So there there is going to be a very steep learning curve, I think. Peter, what do you make of those those comments by UK Chancellor Sajid Javid? He urged businesses to get prepared for a future where, where Britain indeed no longer adheres to EU rules and regulations. Yeah, I mean, I think it's clear that Boris Johnson's administration has made the calculation uh, that the mandate they uh, claimed in the last election, this overwhelming majority in parliament, reflects that uh, the public has said we're ready to get on with Brexit. And to and they're construing that as a mandate to leave the European single marketplace and to diverge 
uh, from the rules of the of the European single marketplace. The Europeans have said the more you diverge, and and we're talking about rules that govern product safety, labor conditions, and wages, uh, the environment. The more Britain diverges from those shared standards with Europe, the less access your uh, British companies will have to that marketplace. Now that's very alarming to multinational companies, uh, for instance, in, in, in the auto industry, in aerospace, uh, in pharmaceuticals, where uh, in order to participate in the European marketplace, to, to, to be part of the supply chain, they've got to comply with the rules. But what Johnson's administration seems to be saying is, look, at least symbolically, we want to make our own rules. And so we want to have the right to diverge from those rules. That's something that is very popular in the Trump administration because the U.S. is in part using a free trade negotiation with Britain as a means of softening up European regulations that, that Washington's been complaining about for years. You know, the U.S. wants to be able to export genetic, genetically modified crops, not just to Britain, but across Europe. They want to send chlorinated chicken, this topic we've heard a lot about, uh, in the in the British press, uh, and they they view these, uh, or at least they portray uh, these regulations against those imports as as capricious and and not backed up by science in in, in Europe. So uh, this 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 notion that uh, that the trade minister is is advancing uh, that we're going to have divergence signals that Britain is going to move closer to the U.S. and further away from Europe. Terry, what happens if it turns out that the trade deal negotiations with Washington are going to be extremely difficult and, as expected, they're going to be extremely difficult with Brussels as well? Does that mean that that the U.K. will have to show more flexibility than we expect at the moment? I think they probably will. I mean, it's interesting looking at this whole issue of uh, a digital tax, which they haven't managed to agree at a across EU or at an international level. Uh, so France, which had made a lot of noise about this earlier on, is now saying, well, you know, in the face of threats that there could be uh, massive tariffs on, on French wine and so forth in the States, it's saying, well, you know, maybe we could push back introducing that in a bit until the end of the year and, and try and sort of uh, move that. So there obviously is going to be a certain amount of, of room for manoeuvre there, but we haven't got that much time. Time, certainly as far as the EU is concerned. And I think what some people are suggesting is that we might start to have these kind of sector by sector agreements where, so, OK, we've agreed something about the, the car industry, but we haven't agreed uh, a deal on financial services. That's just going to make it even more complicated uh, for businesses, particularly people that are working in, you know, if you're working in the car industry, you're also often dealing in financial futures and so forth as well in order to have the money to, to pay for things. So it's not that straightforward. And I think we're going to find that as the as time kind of compresses towards the end of the year. It's going to be an interesting year. Peter, just finally, before we move on, Donald Trump arrived in Davos celebrating yeah. the story strength of the American economy at a time when it seems Beijing and Washington have put an end to their trade deal. How will that deal impact how the US deals with the UK going forward? Uh, Well, I mean, I think that for Trump, he feels like he's gotten the political benefits of confrontation uh, with, in, in China's case, uh, a core adversary. Uh, in, terms of, in terms of the UK, I mean, I mean, Everyone in Britain who's paying attention to trade policy is aware of the fact that Trump favors a confrontationalist and unilateralist uh, set of policies. He likes bilateral trade deals. And he said very openly that's because in a bilateral trade deal, the U.S. always has the upper hand. The U.S. is the largest economy uh, on earth. 
And so uh, one should be cautious in, in, in Britain about what that means. Uh, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine a scenario where Boris Johnson can wrap up a deal on trade with Donald Trump without giving up uh, significant concessions. And the question is, will he be willing to give up a clear economic advantage in exchange for the symbolic uh, benefit of saying, you know, you see, I told you if we could get out from under the European Union, we could go forge our own path, uh, focusing on faster growing parts of the globe like the U.S., like China, uh, like Australia, India. Uh, and this will be, you know, a, a, a trophy that he can at least put up and display if he can get a deal. But it will clearly come at some cost. And finally today, the World Health Organization will meet today to decide whether a deadly new respiratory illness spreading globally should be declared a public health emergency of international concern. The coronavirus outbreak has left nine people dead and more than 400 infected in five countries, including the United States. With growing evidence, the disease can spread from person to person. Terry... How safe do you feel that it is China where this pandemic seems to have started and the country is trying to control it now, a society run by one party regime that restricts information? Uh, I think, obviously, yeah, there is a concern, obviously, just partly to do with um, the sheer numbers of people, uh, the potential for this illness to spread. And particularly, um, we're coming up to the Chinese Lunar New Year. It's one of the biggest annual movements of people in the world as people in China, you know, go home to to visit their families. And obviously, at the time, if there is a... um, a potential outbreak of this disease and you've got you know millions and millions of people moving about from one place to the other that's um something you know it's quite a, a big risk there and i think yeah there are also questions to be asked about um how much information china is willing to give people like the world health organization and the rest of us uh, about uh, what is what is actually going on but that said uh, they also then have the means to tell people within China to to do whatever they decide is necessary to try and keep this outbreak under control. Well, Peter, I know you lived in China during the SARS outbreak some years ago. What does does what you see in media now bring you flashbacks? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I lived in Shanghai in two thousand three uh, at a time when there were clearly hundreds of cases of SARS. That was the disease we were worrying about then, or the virus rather, uh, in Hong Kong and in Beijing as well. Uh, and the Shanghai authorities claimed that there were no cases whatsoever. And I was running around going to hospitals with my colleagues pretty easily finding that that just wasn't true. There were cases. And the dynamic today uh, does bear some similarities. So we have Xi Jinping saying publicly uh, – Please tell us, you must tell us, you're violating the national interest, local authorities, if you're not transparent and clear uh, about uh, what's happening in your neck of the woods. Uh, But, of course, the regime does not want to um, alarm the public. Uh, They'd like to show uh, the sense that they've decisively dealt with this and people don't have to worry, especially, as Terry correctly notes, before the Lunar New Year, when something like, you know, hundreds of millions of people are going to be traveling. And, And Wuhan, which is the epicenter uh, of this particular outbreak is a, is a really large city. Uh, lots of people will be passing through Wuhan uh, and uh, on their way uh, to their homes. So there, there's real reason to worry, and there's reason to worry that the government 
is not uh, transparently grappling with the extent of the threat and letting the public know. And how really do you deal Mm. with an epidemic without alarming some people? You have to alarm people to let them know that the epidemic is real and that they have to take some countermeasures to prevent uh, infection. Terry, do you think we've learned any lessons since, for example, that SARS outbreak in 2002 and 2003? Um, I think, you know, the people like the World Health Organization have obviously got lots of protocols there ready. I mean, I think the question is recognizing what the disease is, if this is something that's emerged, recently emerged, and then trying to... Uh, put in place measures. I mean, we saw this with with Ebola, trying to tell people that, you know, you shouldn't be travelling if you have any symptoms, if you have even a slightly raised temperature. Of course, people being people, they're all going to go, well, I'm not going to be stuck here with, with this temperature. I want to go home where I know I can get my health care or something like that. So it's trying to... Sometimes in this case, you have got to override people's individual rights in the interests of um, controlling an epidemic. But part of that is giving people uh, as much information as as you have. So I mean, I think there's yeah, you know, there's a diff- couple of different aspects. There's the there's the immediate medical aspect, and then there's the kind of public relations, public information aspect as well. Peter Goodman and Terry Stiasny, thank you very much. In a moment, we'll hear a little bit more about Monaco's coverage of Davos from our team in our Switzerland bureau. You are listening to Monaco's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monaco's House View. I am Marcus Hippi. Finally today, world leaders may be capturing the headlines in Davos, but they are not the only ones on stage with a story to tell. Monaco's Ben Ryan is at our bureau in Zurich. He spoke to Nika Daswani, head of arts and culture at the World Economic Forum. The forum is, is first and foremost a, a platform for for people from different horizons to come to share to agree or disagree, and 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 the hope is that by bringing people who can make a difference together uh, with the right intentions, that uh, change then happens. So that's that's very much the uh, that's very much the desire. And how does that all relate back to the kind of people who are invited to become speakers at each event? I mean, we often talk about uh, whether whether certain speakers are going to be headline grabbers and whether others are sort of going to be drowned out by all the political noise. Uh, how do you go about choosing who gets to speak and who goes where? Look, we, we try to be as representative as can be within a, a, a small uh, conference centre in, in a small town. So we, we try to make sure that we have the representation from, from business, from politics and from civil society. And, and when it comes from civil society, this year, for example, in particular, we're focusing on youth voices. We have several um, ch- teenage change makers. We bring, of course, cultural leaders. We bring religious leaders. Um, the idea is to try to bring in a diversity of perspectives, also in terms of uh, gender, people from, from different parts of the world. And uh, the extent to which one can be representative with 3,000 participants uh, is, is, is what we try to achieve. Uh, but perhaps most importantly, we're, you know, we're trying to bring people who have an intention to, to create the change or, or who want to feel like they're part of something greater, who can contribute something great that can then be, be greater than the sum of its parts when, when, it's, when it's collective. That's certainly the ambition. 
We've been hearing from quite a few people at our Zurich Bureau this week, which it must be said has been uh, quite busy indeed. It is tempting to think that everyone is up there at Davos, but uh, the city of Zurich is still absolutely bustling. But regardless of who you speak to, uh, whether they've been passing through Davos or really just spectating from down here by the lake, uh, a lot of people are saying that uh, when it comes to uh, politics, domestic politics can't help but become part of what happens at the World Economic Forum. Do you find that as well? Does that factor into your decision-making, that that you are going to uh, uh, inevitably have some domestic politics filter through into what people are talking about? Well, look, I think, I think the annual meeting in, in Davos is a global platform. Uh, it, it, it is... Um, what happens here gets um, talked about domestically, of course, for the for the leaders, uh, and and of course internationally. So, so we you know we see these things as as intertwined, and we are trying to make sure that the agendas, uh, or certainly to provide a platform where where national agendas can can be brought into a broader conversation, regional conversation, and global conversation. Now, something else that, uh, that that is always going to be part of the agenda at Davos, but perhaps doesn't command some of the big headlines that, that they perhaps should, is uh, the topics that are dominating the arts and culture agenda as well. Can you take us inside inside some of that uh, that part of the conference? Because we don't we don't really hear about that an, an awful lot. Certainly not in the front pages of the newspapers, anyway. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And, uh, you know, it will always be the World Economic Forum. But um, I think the forum, the founder and, and his wife, many, many years back, had the, had the, the, the foresight to say that if we're going to have these big conversations, these big gatherings, you, you can't not have people from culture, artists, creatives, people who create the frame and the lens through so how you know cultures get created. I mean, if you just look at the impact of film, television, music, books on our lives, you could argue that culture is not is not even a, a pillar as much as the framing for how everything that we do makes sense. So um, we try to think very uh, carefully and clearly about how to bring artists and how to bring artistic experiences and content. So this year at Davos, we at the annual meeting, we have the equivalent of a, of a festival, um, but it's not a side festival. It's a festival of, of experiences, of, of uh, performances. We have, I think, 25 different exhibitions, uh, installations, performances, uh, and, and various other happenings in, in collaboration with, with leading artists, in collaboration with institutions like the Smithsonian Institution, the Natural History Museum in London, the Wellcome Trust, and others. And they um, basically enrich the ho- overall participant experience with with content that is tied to the issues um, that is not perhaps as prescriptive as some of the other uh, happenings here and actually more about an evocation and a way to to get people to think differently to touch to feel we use a lot of haptic and a lot of uh, virtual reality so so we work with some of the leading artists who, who also understand what this platform is about and who have something to contribute on these topics in ways that perhaps you know a panel discussion or a report might not be able to do. And so we, we see this as, as a part of the broader uh, portfolio of experiences as a, as a participant you might have. The other thing is for us to, to bring uh, unsung heroes and voices that you don't necessarily hear about. Um, so we, we try and we think very clearly about inclusion and diversity and artists from underrepresented communities, but who have some very, very important things to share and who have life perspectives that are at once very rooted and grounded in their community and in their reality and also have uh, grand visions of the world which, which can contribute to the overall dialogue.
Nico, one part of uh, an economic forum is always going to be a question of forecasting, isn't it? I mean, we can all talk about what's been happening uh, in the year before us, but really we're all trying to second guess what is going to be happening in the year ahead. Now, that is not something we generally talk about in the concept of arts and culture, but how do you, how does it play into what you do and and how you uh, determine arts and culture-wise what is going to be an important conversation to have in 2020? Well, you know, if if you work in a museum, you're you're thinking about your exhibition two to three years ahead of time. We we are planning exhibitions with partners six to seven months ahead because we we want to be uh, we want to be able to respond to be responsive to what's happening, uh, and and it does require that sort of generosity from partners to to pivot and and get out of their comfort zone in a way to work with us to bring urgent issues in ways in ways that are sophisticated, that are nuanced, that are uh, that are going to get people's attention. Um, there are two main strands, I think, that will never go away. Uh, one on, on, on ecology and sustainability, basically the, you know, the, the health of our planet, and, and it has become one of the dominant conversations here at the annual meeting for all the obvious reasons. Uh, and the other one is one on, on inclusivity and, and diversity. I mean, we, we will never reach really a time when we, where we have a perfect world, and, but, but we have to keep uh, making sure that unheard voices, uh, underrepresented communities um, are fully at the table and, and, and are part of the conversation. Uh, we are talking on what is day two of the World Economic Forum for this year. It's probably too early to ask you for your reflections, but uh, yesterday was rather eventful as far as speakers were concerned. Do you have any highlights so far, or perhaps do you have any uh, coming attractions that we should all be looking out for? As you said at the, at the, at the beginning, that there's so much that happens that, that doesn't get seen. I mean, I, you know, as we're speaking, Yo-Yo Ma is 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 doing a pop up um, a, a cello performance for for a, a gathering group of people in between two presidential addresses, and he's just doing that in the middle of the Congress Center. Um, it, it's sometimes hard to relate what what happens here. I think you know the the forum will always be a, a, an important flat platform for for politics and, uh, and and political leaders see Davos as an important uh, moment, very perhaps the most important in the, in the annual calendar to come together. Uh, and so this today we will have several presidential addresses. Um, we, but you know at the same time we have some wonderful sessions and panels on the, the you know the green economy with 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 uh, you know our young global leaders, some of our global shapers who are here, some economists together with some tech pioneers. Um, you know, on any given day, we have about 150 sessions in the official program alone. That was Ben Ryden speaking to Nico Daswani, Head of Arts and Culture at the World Economic Forum. And that's all for today's programme. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bage, and our studio managers were Steph Chung and Christy Evans. Coming up at 2000 London time, a brand new edition of The Entrepreneurs with Daniel Bage. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow, that is at 19 in Zurich, 1800 in London and 1300 in New York City. I am Marcus Hippie. Thanks for listening and goodbye.